Today's scripture is from Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Well, good morning, Damascus Row. We are going <clears throat> again through uh, the book of Colossians, verse by verse. And if you haven't gotten a study guide yet, there are no more study guides. So, but there will be some. Uh, they look like this. this is the last one. So, whoever gets it, like I'll leave it up here, and you can grab it uh, at some point. But we'll print some more. They're very helpful. Um, there's information here to give you some background that I maybe didn't touch on. There is uh, a study for individuals that you can go through to match the sermons. For group studies, this is what our road groups are kind of uh, founded on in terms of the content that they use. And then it provides some stuff for you who are, uh, have families to lead your uh, children through, to, uh, to guide them in, in having some kind of a Sabbath service together as a family uh, so you can celebrate something outside of Sunday morning and also prepare them for Sunday morning. So... That is for you. You can also download it on our website um, if uh, you want to look at the PDF instead. So we are, uh, again, in the book of Colossians, and we're going to get right to it in Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. Epaphras, who uh, is a Colossian, and he is the one who planted this church uh, in his own hometown of Colossae, and he has come to visit the man who uh, preached him the gospel, uh, and he heard that at uh, the city of Ephesus when uh, Paul, the apostle, was uh, lecturing for about two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and he heard, uh, it's assumed, and uh, received uh, salvation, and he went and planted this church, uh, actually a couple of them over in the Lycus Valley uh, in the map we saw last week. Now, he is visiting Paul in what is his first Roman imprisonment, and you see that at the very end of the book of Acts through the last uh, three or four chapters. And he comes to Paul with some disturbing news about this young church that's probably about our age in terms of uh, just under five years. And the false teachers, some false teachers have either come up through the church or have come into the city, and they're poisoning this young church with false teaching, and they are claiming, uh, among other things, that Epaphras uh, himself didn't preach the full gospel, and that their faith, the Colossian faith, that is, is somehow incomplete. It's not full, it's, they need something in addition to what they have. And their solution, their heretical solution, probably better said, to this spiritual deficiency that exists, uh, is to institute what amounts to the Jesus Plus program, and the plus is adding all kinds of you know, human philosophy or legalisms or uh, forms of man-made religion uh, or even some weird mystical 
uh, junk that they had. In essence, claiming that, that Jesus Christ and faith in him alone, uh, Jesus is neither supreme nor sufficient for, for salvation is the, at the heart of what they're trying to say. And so Paul's letter to the Colossians is, uh, has several purposes, but he begins by affirming the preaching of Epaphras, who planted the church. And he does that by praising the Colossians and their reception of the gospel, specifically how it has transformed them. And so in doing that, he, he sets forth really what amounts to some, the basics of Christianity, uh, we'll call it. Namely, uh, what all Christians who experience the gospel and receive the gospel, what all Christians believe, what all Christians do, and really why all Christians do it or believe it, the motivation behind it. So knowing that these false teachers are coming in and they're trying to add something to the Christianity of the Colossians, the question is begged, like, what are this bare essentials of Christianity? Like, what is at the core of uh, the basic beliefs or practices or perspectives of a gospel identity? When someone receives a gospel, what's the bare minimum um, that they receive? And obviously, there are lots of things that we could probably say in terms of, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, what are the basics? In fact, there's large books written on that about the essentials of Christianity and the basics of faith and those types of things. And um, if we had to, though, narrow down what it means to be Christian, what it means for a gospel identity, if we had to narrow that down to three words or three phrases and still, like, be biblical, um, what would they be? What would they be? The world seems to have its answer for what it means to be a Christian. Uh, you can Google it or just ask someone who is not of what they think. And uh, most of their answers are a bit antagonistic or skeptical, skeptical um, or um, definitely unbiblical. Uh, they'll probably say stuff like they're narrow-minded. Uh, Christians are hypocritical, ignoramuses. Um, they are really moralistic, self-righteous, foolish. I mean, stuff like that. And the reason they probably have the wrong answers, uh, I think, is because Christians don't ever tell them the right ones. And in fact, maybe what they tell them through their behavior or even through their words um, is they, they make what is maybe secondary uh, or third in importance primary. And that's what they see. And they have their opinions formed because of that. So if you had to exclude, if we had to just kind of exclude for a second, put on the shelf all the things that we in our mind right now think like, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. They believe or they do or they say these things. If we had to exclude those, those, those charismatic experiences that we had that were so precious to us or the denominational traditions that we grew up in or the subjective emotions, even the political positions uh, some of the theological terminology or labels or positions, um, the specific Bible knowledge, like, you know, all Christians know these things, like the books of the Bible or whatever, um, the moral standards, we say Christians believe in this, um, maybe even some of the religious practices that we have, some of those traditions, uh, or the secret handshakes, the weird stuff that you really like. Okay, all that, if you had to exclude that, and you had to just really narrow it down to... Um, you couldn't use those things as the primary descriptors, though they might describe whatever flavor of faith 
turns your crank, what would you say? What would you say? What would be those, those basics? Because it can be pretty overwhelming if you think about it when you start asking, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And our minds, I think, naturally start going into a lot, a lot of the stuff like, well, Christians talk like this. Uh, Christians act like this. They dress like this. You know, whatever. Everyone has their own direction that their mind goes. And it, it is sincerely overwhelming because what I think you're starting to talk about is Christian culture, evangelical culture. You know what I'm talking about. Like the t-shirts, instead of Sprite, it says Spirit. That kind of stuff, right? As opposed to, like, okay, what's the core? What's the Bible say the core is? So in verse 3, Paul begins by telling the Colossians how he has not ceased to thank God for the reported genuineness of their Christianity. And his expression of gratitude, which kind of extends through verse 5 there, uh, provides us what I think is a summary of Christianity in three words. Faith, love, and hope. That's what he thanks God for. He doesn't thank Him for all the, the traditions they have, for all the service they've done to the community. He isn't, not that those things are bad, but he's, he centers it on these three things, faith, love, and hope. And this is not the first time Paul uses these three simple words to summarize, I think, what the heart of Christianity is or what it means to be a Christian. And he repeats these same ideas, sometimes in different forms a little bit, but these same concepts in his letter to the Romans in his letter to the Galatians, in his letter to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, and even in Hebrews. Then in verse 5, Paul says that the Colossians' faith, their love, their hope, these things came alive the first time they heard and understood the word of truth, the gospel. That's where they were created, if you will, or transformed. So this not only affirms the, the gospel work of Epaphras, who was the guy who preached it, but it reminds, I think, us of the mysterious power of proclaiming the gospel, that it actually does something. And it's mysterious what it does, but the proclaiming of the news of Christ, certain truths about what Jesus Christ did and who he was in history to reconcile us to God. The gospel is, is not advice of what we need to do to find God. It is that we accept what's been done for God to find us, if you will. Now, God's choice, as foolish as it seems, to use the proclamation, the verbal proclamation of the gospel of who Christ is and what he did to save men is pretty darn mysterious. It's, it's, it's strange, and it's amazing. In Romans 1.16, Paul says it is the power. The gospel is the power for salvation. And in Romans 10, he later says that faith comes from hearing and not through the word of Christ. So it has power. It's something happens when people proclaim. And so that's what's happened here with the Colossians when Epaphras first came. The gospel transforms an individual. Those who receive the gospel, they are changed. And it's not that these three things, faith, love, and hope, suddenly appear out of nowhere. It's that these three things are changed themselves. And before the gospel, we do put our faith in someone, sometimes something. We do love in some way. 
and we do hope for something or things. We do have a faith, love, and hope apart from the gospel or prior to the gospel. But the gospel comes in, the power of God, the word of Christ comes and transforms all three of those radically. And it's likely that if you, Christian, if you are a Christian and you feel as if or you would describe yourself as struggling in your faith right now, lots of ways to say that. My faith sucks is one. Okay? My faith is stagnant. God is distant. You know, all, there are all kinds of phrases. But if that's how you would describe yourself, my guess is that you have stopped believing, preaching, and living in one of these three basic things. And perhaps it's better to say that I think you have stopped believing some part of the gospel. Because that's where it's all rooted in. Now, let's talk about faith. It says the gospel transforms our faith. Now, the word faith in our culture is so overused to the point that it's, it really has seemingly little meaning even for Christians. It's just kind of this nebulous idea. When things get difficult in anyone's life, when trials happen, you'll often hear people say, just have faith. Just have faith. And by saying this, I think that they intend to bring comfort um, by suggesting that everything is going to be okay without really any basis for believing that that will happen. Just like, you know, a time or, or something, you just like, just have faith, have faith. And a call to have faith like that does have some things right. It, it correctly realizes that things are not as they ought be, something's off, that you need to be rescued or you feel as if you need to be saved because it's a helpless situation and help is going to come from something outside of yourself. So it's got some things right, but you can't just have faith in faith. That's just pretty stupid, right? Have faith. Okay. Well, what does that mean? And so... Chance, I mean, it could be chance, it could be dumb luck, it could be the power of positive thinking, but those things don't really bring change. They certainly don't bring comfort, because if that's all there is, just chance, dumb luck, and hopefully better thinking, I'm terrified. That's terrifying to believe that's all there is. But the power of faith, true faith, is derived from the object of faith. Now, the question then is simply, and it seems so simple, like, oh yeah, of course, like, what is it you are putting your faith in? And there are lots of things to put your faith in. Paul says, I like that he says, your faith. Not suggesting that the Colossians can save themselves, but clearly saying that our minds and our will are involved. That we, we do make decisions. Now, without the gospel, we do put our faith in things. Naturally. There are tangible things like people. And if you spend any amount of time in life with putting your faith in people, you realize real quickly that that doesn't work very well for all people. 
Uh, there are people who put their faith in government. They've hoped that government, and then that really doesn't work out very well either. People put their faith in pleasure, whether it be sex or some other means, uh, in substances, in money, in religion. Paul was really renowned for that. But really, those are just, I think, the, the covering for what is actually at the heart, the idolatry of the heart. And here are the things that I actually think we're trying to pursue in putting our faith in those things. Things like approval, things like control, and reputation, and security, and pleasure, and knowledge, and recognition, and respect. All false saviors preaching a false gospel to us that we buy into. So, I think I, was it today, I put a Facebook post up today that basically said, yeah, we're preaching the gospel again, because that's really all we have. And so, this is, this is so simple, you almost feel bad about it, like, well, gosh, talking about Jesus again, because, but this is it. It's quite simple. It's so simple. The Christian puts his faith, his trust, in specific truths about who Jesus of Nazareth is and what he did. That's where the faith begins. And the Christian trusts that the Son of God came as a man to this place a couple thousand years ago. That that man named Jesus, as my substitute, lived a sinless life, the one that I was supposed to have lived, and then as my substitute died under the wrath of God that I deserved. Those are specific truths. And through faith in Him, who He is, what He did, our old, sinful, broken, rebellious, screwed up life dies, buried with Him, and is raised anew to a new life. And Galatians 2.20 says, He is now living through us. That's where our faith is. And so the Christian, though this might seem... um, I just don't know if people really look at Christianity like this. Strange as that is to say. The Christian doesn't pursue an idol to obtain one of those things I listed. Approval, security, pleasure, recognition, all those things. The Christian puts his faith in Christ Jesus in whom he already has all those things. That's an entirely different way to to view life. What's that mean? Let me just make it personal for you. Okay? Faith is, is finding all of who you are and all that you do in Jesus, that even if you don't get the approval of men, whatever that means, by faith you know you're accepted by Jesus, and that's all that counts and matters. That even if you don't feel secure right now, even if, you, if things feel chaotic, even if you feel out of control, by faith you know that you're protected by Christ and that Jesus has you and that he's in control. Even if you find yourself caught in sin, giving in to temptation, you know by faith you're forgiven by Jesus. That even if you find pain and brokenness and suffering in this world, by faith you know 
that you can delight in Jesus and that all suffering because of his suffering is not senseless. That's a different kind of faith. Because the world, I think, is crying out to find identity and find those things and put their faith in all kinds of different saviors. And so because of the noise of that, because of the sermons we hear constantly, I mean, sermons through culture, TV, family, friends, our experiences, how we were raised, all these sermons telling us we have to go back preaching ourselves faith in the work of Christ constantly. The Colossians didn't need the Jesus Plus program. They didn't need to add traditions or, or a bunch of new legalistic rules or emotional experiences or secret handshakes to complete their faith. Jesus completed it on the cross and gave them everything they needed. That's where Paul's beginning. Faith. Faith in Christ. And that faith in Christ also transforms how we love. This is another idea, love, that is just brutalized by every generation. It's redefined every year, it seems. And any common understanding, a universal acceptance, like what is love or loving, has been lost and usually twisted uh, in an effort to make men feel better about their sin. And, And much like the days of Rome, I think, I've been really thinking about love in our culture, A, pretty superficial, and it's also fairly self-serving. And what I mean is, uh, God's love is completely other-oriented, and love in our culture seems to be pretty self-oriented. What is considered loving or not is, is usually dictated by how it makes people feel. And of course, love never makes anyone feel bad, right? Now... Whatever is bad is up to the individual to determine. So the individual has the authority to dictate what's offensive. And so with with personal happiness as kind of the goal, the standard is ever-changing with every person and every culture and every one. So love then becomes, it just kind of degenerates into little more than trying to provoke or avoid certain responses in others so that I or someone else can feel accepted or not rejected. That's what love is. Now, I don't say this just as about non-believing culture, sadly. Christians are equally guilty of perverting the meaning of love to meet their personal preferences. And sometimes this means reinterpreting what is loving to fit their comfort. And sometimes it means large groups of Christians, even full denominations, Redefining it all together to accommodate rebellious, loving people who love everything but God's Word. That's a little bit of a twist in our culture. But like what we put our faith in, how we love is something that we have some level of control over, beginning with faith in Christ. There is a will involved. I I have a decision how I'm going to treat you. But without Christ, one's love is never going to glorify God or fully satisfy. But through Christ, love becomes renewed and empowered by the gospel. Or, as Paul writes in, I believe, 2 Corinthians 15, talks about love of Christ controlling him. Because it's a love that's different. It's a love that is 
powerful. It's a love that's radical. It's a love that's truthful. And if it's at all a love like Jesus, it's also offensive and alluring all at the same time, which is kind of weird. Yes, Jesus loved the world. John 3.16, football verse. Woo, right? He loved the world. And again, when you come through the filter of culture, you're like, sometimes I wonder how that's being received. He loved the world and he ate with sinners, but he also died for their sin. In other words, he loved them so much, he didn't want them to stay the same way. And before Jesus was arrested, he told the disciples that their faith in him would be characterized by a love like his. That their love for one another would be the most powerful sermon they could preach. So Paul doesn't simply admire the Colossians because it's been reported by the Colossus city or, or Roman you know, culture that, man, these people are just super loving people. He praised them because of their unity and love for fellow believers, love for the saints. This is the kind of love, this love is a foundational trait of a Christian. You love Christ, there's the faith, and you love the church. You love the church. And I know that church for many of us has a negative connotation because of experiences, because of of a lot of things. And we go, well, why does, you know, can't we just love Jesus and not the church? Well, that's not how Jesus loved. Jesus loved the church so much he died for it. And if Jesus, by faith, is living through us, there should be a love in us for fellow believers. Like I said, though, a lot of people do not love the church and it, and it It grinds them a little bit to hear that. But the truth is, if if that's not how you feel, um, I wonder if you stop believing some aspect of the gospel. If some part of the gospel has become just too inconvenient for you to live out. The Colossians loved each other as Jesus had loved them. It was a mark of their faith in the gospel so much he, he's like, man, Epaphras doesn't stop talking about it. I hear about your love in the Spirit, your love for the saints. And like Jesus, their love was humble and foolish and sacrificial at times and generous and painful and radical. That's the kind of love he's talking about if it's truly a love like Christ. And the thing that I really uh, hit me this week was that in our world, typically people love in order to elicit a response from someone else. Like, I want you to think that I'm a loving person. I want you to feel my love. I want you to be blessed by my love. Feels good to know people, you know, when my kids come home, Daddy, I love you. Feels good. That exchange. But Christ, I really believe that if if we're going to love like Christ, our motivation is not necessarily out of a love for others primarily. If it's like Christ, it's primarily out of a love for God. And so when, when we're loving somebody, our greatest expectation and, and, and joy would not be for that person to love us in response. 
Not that we don't want to be hated, but it's not that they would think, man, Sam is so dang loving. It's that they would look to Christ. It's that through my love, they would actually love God. That's the hope. And that will cause you to love in ways that may be undeserved in your eyes from the people there, but you won't have any expectations from them. You're simply loving to the glory of God. That's gospel love. Totally different kind of love. So, the gospel transforms our faith in that what we put our faith in, specifically, and that faith changes our love to make it a very specific kind of love. What's it look like? Look at Jesus. And then we have this hope piece. Our, our expectations for the future. But hope is more than just wishful thinking or optimism. It is, it's the motivation for why we believe or, or do anything. And unlike faith and love, it, it seems like we have a little bit less control, if we can even use that word, over hope. This is something that rests with, with God. That's why it's hope. Hope is, is that unseen thing in which your expectations and your perspectives and your actions are all centered. It drives everything. Now, everyone, believe it or not, has a a governing hope in their life. And that governing hope sometimes is a certain image of wealth. It doesn't have to be exorbitant, but a certain level of wealth or success in regard Sometimes it's just to be admired for doing something, being the best at something. I mean, for me, I've always, you've never been the best at something. You know what I mean? I was like, I just want to be the best. I remember filling out like resumes or whatever, and you're like, you want to like, you know, I'm the best darn chess player in the world. I mean, whatever, something. I can draw like no one's business. So you just feel there's a pride in that completely. But that can be governing. I'm going to be the best swimmer. I'm going to be the best plumber. I'm going to be the best whatever. Sometimes a governing hope is is to leave a legacy. I'm going to leave a legacy. Nothing wrong with leaving a legacy until it becomes the most governing hope you have. Having good kids, then you realize how hopeless that might be, right? (laughs) Or just long life. I mean... I'm not going to bash on the whole health craze, organic, blah, 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 you know, count your carbs, all that stuff. I mean, clearly, I'm not big fan. So, but, you know, what happens when that becomes your governing hope? How does that impact all of your decisions and change how you live? Now, some of those things should change. If we were to ask 100 non-Christians, people don't, Confess Jesus, they might like him, great teacher, good example, for what they hope for most in life, for what they look forward to, what what overarching expectation guides their life, they would probably name something like that. And another way to find out what it is, is just to say, what do you fear losing most or not getting? Sadly, I think if you asked 100 Christians, they'd probably say something similar to one of those things. It'd be hard to distinguish the differences. In fact, this week I asked several people, including my 10-year-old son, 
Um, just like if you were going to narrow down three things, just like Paul seems to do here. Three ideas or practices or beliefs, you know, that, that characterize Christianity. If you could only name three things, what would it be? And surprisingly, everyone had some variation of the first two, like faith in Christ, share the love of God with others. Like those are the most important things. Like, oh, cool. The third one was always a weird, it was a smorgasbord of stuff. None of them were wrong. They're all good things, but none of them were even close to hope. Hope, gospel hope seems to get lost. I don't know how many Christians or how many people would characterize Christians as, man, they're really hopeful people. The gospel is not just the life and death of Jesus. It is His resurrection and His return. That can't be forgotten. The gospel brings us a living hope because the King is alive and reigning right now. The king is returning. The king is restoring all things. And the king will one day dwell in the presence of his people forever. That's part of the gospel. That's the hope. Hope is a foundational part of the gospel. It is the motivating power that drives us to endure anything and everything because we see beyond the moment. And if you can't see beyond the moment, the circumstance, your hope is in the wrong thing. Look at Paul. The guy's writing this letter, a crushed, perplexed, beaten, stressed out, and imprisoned guy who, if you look at his letters, constantly writes about hope. Constantly. Why do you think that? Well, not only does he desire more than anything to remind us, he wants to remind himself. When you're getting beaten with rods and you're drowning maybe in the sea, hope. Where is my hope? It's not here. Because he knows that our decisions have eternal significance, that anything we might desire in this life pales in comparison, even life, to life that's coming. Because that this life is a vapor, he knows it, and that all this stuff is going to burn up and pass away. And my young son, when I told him that, as I was preaching to him very softly the other day, he said, even Lake Chelan? <laughs> you see where he goes? Lake Chelan. So I think there'll be something better than Lake Chelan there. His name's Jesus. But man, just think about your hope for a second, because this is such a perspective, life-changing reality. When you're with Jesus for 70 million years, which isn't even eternity, right? We'll just take that chunk. You're going to look back at the 70 years you had in life. And the greatest successes you had are going to be about as great as that certificate you got in first grade for being the checkers champion. <laughs> right? You'll be like, what was that? And the worst suffering, I honestly believe, is going to feel like a stub toe maybe that you don't even remember. 70 million years in the presence of God. Life is a vapor. 
This is not our home. That's part of the gospel, but it's not a part that I think Christians really keep at the forefront of their mind. Maybe they just put a piece of, you know, index card on the front. This is not your home. This is not your home. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, after he preaches the gospel and tells about his own transformation, Paul says in verse 19 that if we've hoped in Christ just in this life, without a resurrection, we are more than anyone a people to be most pitied. Man, we hope for the wrong things. C.S. Lewis, in speaking about this, he wrote, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, too small. And then in verse 5, Paul seems to say that, that faith and love actually kind of originate with hope. That means that if your faith is full of incredible doubts, or if your love for others is almost imperceptible, then your problem is most likely where you've placed your hope. And it seems like that we only begin to, to realize the hopelessness of this world when we face our own mortality. You don't have to convince people that are told, you know what, you're probably going to die within a couple years, within a couple months, about the hopelessness of this world. Because suddenly, nothing in this world helps. And suddenly that person, the hope of eternal life with Christ becomes real. If we could just actually believe that we're all dying, which is true, how would change us? How you would see that nothing in this world is really worth much at all. And that the only hope we truly have is in our King who has fully conquered sin and fully conquered death. And we will resurrect with Him again and be in His presence forever. The Gospel tells us that those who put their faith in Him have an inheritance. What Paul calls, I think it's a beautiful phrase, one of the most beautiful in Scripture. He describes this inheritance reserved in heaven for us as an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are a people who rejoice now because of what will happen then. Hope to be freed finally from this sinful flesh. Hope to be fully restored. Hope to be in the joy of His presence again. Read a passage out of Peter who describes, again, a mentality that I want to live in. And I find myself having to have to go back to Peter and read it over and over again because it's very easy to not believe it. He says in 1 Peter verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It takes faith to believe there was a resurrection of Jesus. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Ah, hope. That's hope. close it out here. He says that this this gospel in verse 6 which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. He says that the gospel provide this foundation of, of what it means to be a Christian. That they don't need anything else which is faith in Christ. Love like Christ. Hope in Christ. There you go. What's it mean to be a Christian? Faith in Christ. Love like Christ. Hope for Christ. That's enough. There is nothing else. That's what we keep preaching every week and we should be preaching to ourselves every day and to others. And the Colossians' faith, how they regarded themselves, how they treated others, and how they saw their future was completely, radically different than the world. Their decisions were different. Their perspectives were different. Their actions were different. Even if their experiences and their sufferings were the same. They had gone, as he says, from I guess what amounts to a barren shrubbery that provides very little to a fruitful tree providing fruit for themselves, fruit for others, shade for... I mean, how how many... The analogy is endless on what it means to be a fruitful tree. And Paul says that their transformation began the moment they heard and believed. And I had asked myself, I am not old, although I I guess my kids probably would say I am, and there are those who are older than me and younger than me. But spiritually, ask yourself, how your tree has fared and how much fruit has been produced since you first believed. I realize there are seasons when the trees just don't produce as much fruit as, as they ought. And I'm not saying that your faith is measured by the number of boxes that you've filled with your fruit. I'm just simply asking the question. Because if the Gospels come in, fruitfulness, you can't help but be fruitful at some level. And if you look at your life from the moment you believed and you go, man, there's just not much fruit there. Perhaps you've tried to believe in something or add something to the gospel. Because fruitfulness, I think, comes from faithfulness to these gospel basics. And a strong and productive and satisfying and joyful life is not found in man-made religion. It's not found in traditions or rules that make you feel like you're holy or emotionally satisfied. It comes 
quite mysteriously through the gospel, which mysteriously causes us to trust in who Christ is and what he did, to love like he did and does, and to hope for his return. That's faithfulness. And if you have experienced that kind of radical grace, if you've truly been transformed, then it should be your desire to see others experience the same thing. You can't help but be fruitful. And that was the heart of Epaphras. If you just kind of look, because he, he thanks Epaphras at the end here. He says, as you first learned it from Epaphras, as, as you first, my fellow servant, my, my faithful friend and minister who first taught it to you, I taught, or I was talking to Fisher, my oldest, about faith, and I asked him a simple question, and we'll close on this. I said, um, why do you believe? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you heard the gospel, and your neighbors have heard the gospel, and your friends have heard the gospel. Why do you have faith and they don't? He's like, really? That's kind of a deep theological question for your son, isn't it? Yeah, we talk about that kind of stuff, okay? So, welcome to the Ford house. And after a brief discussion, he said that, well, it's faith. And I said, I agree. But then I asked him why he had faith in the truth of Jesus and why someone else did not. And we ended up talking a lot about mystery. And I wrote the definition on the back of that book, which is a truth that one can only know by revelation. And I took him to John 3, and we talked about the Pharisee Nicodemus who comes and talks to Jesus at night. And Jesus is like, he's like, how do I, you know, how do I believe this is, there's something here, I don't know. And he's like, well, you have to be born again. And Pharisee, being the rationalistic one, is like, how am I going to crawl inside my mom's womb again? That's stupid, you know. And Jesus is like, you're a teacher, man. You should know this stuff, haven't you? And he says, it's a spiritual birth. It's a spiritual birth that you have about as much control over as you had your own physical birth. And my son and I both agreed that night that, that faith is pretty mysterious, it's a, it's a gracious gift that comes only through the revelation by the Spirit of God. Which, honestly, makes it a lot less pressure for me preaching. So I just have to make sure I have the gospel accurate and then like, okay, there it is. It's like stick a dynamite. Alright, you know. Hope for the best. What is not a mystery, though, and this is what I really want you to hear. And Epaphras knew this, and Paul knew this, What is not a mystery is the means through which God has decided the Spirit's going to work. Epaphras heard the preaching of the Word of God and he was transformed. And because he was transformed, he wanted more than anything to go back to his hometown. And he did. And he preached the Gospel. And though the Spirit may send men like Paul and and Epaphras to plant churches. You think, I'm never going to do that. The same Spirit has given us the exact same faith and love and hope to share with others. And I know when you want to tell someone about being a Christian, you think, who am I going to start? Well, you go to church and you read your... I mean, let's start with faith, love, and hope. We are all fellow servants. We are all sent to make Christ known through what we believe and how we live. And there is very little mystery about how the gospel goes forth. But only those who find their life 
completely in Christ, will probably ever say anything. So preach the gospel, first yourself and to others, and know that in preaching it, what we're talking about is faith in who Christ is and what He's done. That's easy. Loving like Jesus. Pretty clear. And hoping is something beyond this life, which is for the King to return and be with us again. We can do that.